Hey everyone, and welcome to episode five of No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. I'm your host, Hosea, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Moses. Moses, how you doing? Uh, other than being dead for nearly 3,000 years, I'm doing great. Yeah, well, this... <laughs> better than most people right now i could say um yes (laughs) (laughs) we just wanted to uh break in just really quick this is going to be a little different of an intro than we normally would do uh this is obviously part two of our episode four uh where we went a little bit too long uh so this is the second half of that so uh we just want to say thank you for listening we really appreciate you all listening and and taking the time We hope that you love Mormon history and the content that we're covering as much as we do, uh, because obviously we have a a passion for it. So uh, enjoy episode five. We're just going to pick up where we left off on the last episode. And with that, on to the episode. coming into this period of time that's referred to as the Second Great Awakening. The reason it's called the Second Great Awakening, this this may be self-evident, is because it was the second one. There was one prior to it um, that happened. But the, the term Great Awakening, a Great Awakening would refer to um, just this, a period or just a... Um, no, I think a period is the right way to, to, to term it. Uh, a religious revival, like uh, th- they would have these instances where for just a, a period of time, um, the amount of religiosity would just go crazy high. It would just spike. And we see this throughout history, especially early American history, um, several times. There's actually four Great Awakenings. And the first was in the early to mid-18th century. So we're talking about 1730 to 1755. The depending on the area, because obviously different areas were affected at different times, but started somewhere around 1790 and and, and continued on through 1840. So this whole time, you know, that we're seeing uh, the, the the Smith family do all their stuff, move around, you know, the, the married, I mean, everything um, is happening during the Second Great Awakening. What we, what we need to then bring into that is the fact that they were in an area at now in, in Palmyra that was referred to as the burnt over district. And in, in particular, the burnt over district was, uh, you talk about a period of time that has a spike in religiosity and revivals and, and, and people coming around um, preaching. This was, this was just a multiple of that. I mean, it's ridiculous how much was going on. That's, so that's why, they, that's why they would refer to this area of, of Western New York State as the burnt over district. Um, highly, highly publicized revivals and and uh, all over the region. Uh, if you if you imagine um, kind of a grass fire, it gets burnt over. I mean, it just spreads like wildfire right throughout the district. No, no, exactly. And I think that that's the imagery that that is conjured up with this i this idea, this moniker uh, for this area. So it ebbs and flows a little bit, but we have an area that has just been completely um, saturated with preachers of different types of religions uh at the time there was um methodism was one of the one of the greatest uh 
schisms that occurred at this time. There were there were just I, the number is escaping me at the, at the moment, but there were such a huge number of breakoffs from Methodism at the time, um, and and so all this is going on in the background, and in, in this particular period, this is this is a subject of um, debate at this point. There is some evidence um, from Joseph Smith's record himself, the uh, the journals that he kept stating that these revivals that he's talking to in particular in his story um, were occurring around uh, 1817 to 1818, somewhere in that time frame. So basically right after they moved to Palmyra. However, the historical record doesn't really reflect that as well. Um, and, and as If we're talking about Palmyra specifically, we know that there were the revivals that happened in Palmyra were really around 1824. Um, the reason that that's probably the, the better supported timeline for this is because there there were other records that actually put Joseph Smith as being older for for these events that were leading up to his theophany, um, and and that coincides a lot better with an 1823 to 1824 timeline. So here we're starting to get into something that's that we're talking about some some debated concepts here, but. Whether you think that it's in 1817 or 18, or whether you think it's in 1823 to 24, um, it does matter, but it's one of those things that we can kind of explore without having to necessarily um, stick to one or the other. Um, I'm going to say that I, I think that the evidence supports uh, a later time frame, mainly because of how Joseph Smith Jr. describes what's going on in some of his other um, accounts. Um, but but he certainly does say in, in some accounts that he was he was um, 14 years of age or in his 15th year uh, that uh, that he was he was starting to go to some of these revivals that were happening around uh, around where he lived in Palmyra. So um, interesting Saints actually mentions that they were um, that, that, that this religious revival was happening um, but they do have a phrase in there that actually states that uh, quote religious revival in Palmyra had quieted down. So I'm my suspicion is that they they use this phrase to back up that timeline of 1817-1818. And you know, the reason for that being that uh it it puts Joseph Smith in a different spot essentially than it would if it were happening when he was older. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It's um I mean, at some point you're just arguing semantics. Yeah, in this case it's imp- I think honestly, it is important to understand when events unfolded, because there there's other implications about you know what he was doing in the meantime, essentially. Um, so that's oh yeah, very right. So that's kind of what's going on there. But <clears throat> uh, Dan Bowles says that Palmyra had a revival in 1817, um, and it coincides with another one of uh, Senior's dreams, uh, a dream in which he's begging for forgiveness. He's uh, essentially granted his forgiveness in a very vivid type of imagery. Uh, his concern for forgiveness seems to be heavily influenced by the revival preachers. So that's one That's one thing there. So so some of the confusion that we get is that the Smith family was involved with treasure seeking uh, pretty heavily in this time. It was, it was starting to gain, gain a lot of momentum at this point. Um, in fact, Bushman even mentions in his book, uh, in Rough Stone Rolling, that uh, some of the neighbors of the Smith family were starting to think of, uh, th- sorry, that they stated that the Smith family 
was considered more treasure seekers than they were eager Christians. In fact, they didn't think that they were eager Christians because of the um, the kind of prejudice that was there for people who practice magic or practice occultism. Um, so that that's something to be noted at this time because this is starting to really swell. So another thing the Bushman mentions is that Joseph Smith Sr. had seven dreams. Uh, they actually increased in frequency during the Second Great Awakening, um, me- meaning this you know this particular time frame here. Um, I think that that's important, and, and Moses, you, you and I were talking about this earlier. That uh, you know this this increase in frequency in dreams, we 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 have it not only from Smith Senior, we have it from his father, we have it from Lucy Mack Smith's uh, family as well. We just have this huge family history of dreams, like very very important and and life changing in some circumstances, uh, dreams that happened. So I don't think it's a coincidence that we see this this increasing frequency of dreams, and, we, and we're talking seven different dreams that is leading up to this event, uh, this this theophany event. So I think that I think Brody has a lot to add uh, about what's happening in this time. What what makes this the burned, the burned over district? Um, she she mentions first of all, as I mentioned before, the Methodists and the Baptists they had these really mitotic schisms. They were just completely splitting like crazy all over the place. You have this character, Isaac Bullard. He was like a crunchy John the Baptist character, essentially. <laughs> and uh, we're talking like, you know, didn't didn't shave, didn't bathe, didn't, you know, wore uh, a coat of hair or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> he was just, oh, dear he goodness. was very, um, he was very out there and very smelly probably. Anyway, uh, so oh. then you have Ann Lee. Ann Lee is the is the is the founder of the Shakers movement. Um, she is basically the antithesis of uh, of of Bullard, Isaac Bullard, um, who, the guy with the 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 non shower guy. Um, and so she bathed. Regularly. She bathed regularly, which made her the complete opposite. Um, <laughs> um, you have Jemima Wilkinson. Now this one's interesting. Uh, this we're talking about public universal friend. Yeah, and you've heard of Public Universal Friend, right? Yes. Oh, she's a fascinating one. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the I'm talking about the uh, the pop band. Public Universal. Oh no, no, I haven't I haven't heard. I'm totally joking. No. <laughs> yeah. It does sound like it's like you said before. It's uh, it, you know, these uh, the articles, the the titles for the articles sound like a Panic at the Disco song. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> so so she was referred to as um, as as the Public Universal Friend. Uh, or sometimes just universal friend for short. She she literally thought herself to be um, Christ. I don't know how else to say that. This is what Brody says, and it's supported in other documents. But I'm just saying Brody does a good job of of summing it up. She was um, there. There were some people that were not very happy with that, um, with her referring to herself as Christ. I I think you can probably imagine that, um, and. It's funny because the people back in in the early 19th century or, or just early history anyway, early American history, were really big on the like disses, like they would just really um like how how they would continue to tell essentially just tell lies about each other to try to get the upper hand politically. Um so so this was a culture that was very much into like completely ripping on somebody. Um, for you know, for whatever reason, in this case, obviously there was a huge religious difference here. So they 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 affixed the anti 
prefix uh, to her calling herself Christ. They called her the Antichrist, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> oh, um, so yeah, you you have you have uh, Jemima Wilkinson, and you know it just there's there's so much stuff going on here. You th- these people are all just eccentric, um, charismatic leaders. This is really the this is really the prime time for charismatic leaders. Now I'm using that term in two different ways. They were charismatic in the sense that they actually, you know, led people extremely well. They were able to um, draw a huge amount of people to them. But I'm also actually referring to another concept that is referred to as charismatic authority. This is actually really important to our story because charismatic authority is a concept that that really only starts to happen when this this uh, these great awakenings happen, and it's where you have all these different preachers that show up out of nowhere. They're not formally trained, a lot of them. They're they're um, you know normal normal people, so to speak, quote unquote, right? Uh, and they come out and because they feel called of God, uh, because they've read the Bible, whatever whatever the reasoning is, they that's how they get their authority. So that's the difference between, you know, we, we would have uh, a, a sort of ordained authority, which is somebody, say, in the Catholic Church or maybe in the Protestant Church, you have somebody who's trained, who goes through the process of becoming a priest or some other, um, you know, evangelist or, or whatever the, the title may be, versus somebody who reads the Bible, um, feels the Spirit, and says, hey, I need to go tell other people to repent. And and that's, that's where they get their uh, authority from. So... This is this is just a super common occurrence now um, that you're seeing this happen right in this area, right at this time, and it's all just simmering as as Joseph is becoming he's coming online, so to speak. Right, everything is becoming aware. Uh, sorry, sorry, he's becoming aware of his surroundings. He's starting to soak things up like a sponge, like kids do, and you can see some of the influences early on in, in some of these people. Uh, that he's these he's hearing about or that he's even seeing in person and it's very formative right so so in other words what he's witnessing here is uh, is basically who is who is it that's the better salesman who is it that that is oh how do you put this who is basically bringing bring a more convincing message no you're absolutely right it's yeah a lot of that's based on personality anyway. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, no. So this is kind of what he was witnessing during this. 100%. And, and you would notice that people, okay, I, I, I give you a visual, okay? The camp meetings that would occur, a lot of times there would be multiple um, sects that would meet in the same area. You could literally go to, it was like a convention. You could go to one and then you could be like, oh, I don't know about this preacher and you could go to the next one. And you could see the crowd that was being drawn, right? And so you could tell, okay, this preacher speaks like this. They move their hands like this. So they blah, 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 right? The, this is the way that they speak. It's the way that they carry themselves. Um, and, and you can start to make inferences to what is effective based on the amount of people that are being drawn to them. And I, from what we know of Joseph Smith Jr., this guy is is incredibly perceptive of how to talk to people to bring them to his cause. Uh, he's a, a incredibly good at it. And I think he learned, honestly, I think he learned from the best. Um, and the best were all around him as he was growing up. Well, and then let's also keep in mind that that during his time of, of recuperating from his surgery, he became a student of observation. 
He was able to pick up on things uh, just by observing things around him because he was not able to participate for a large portion of that time. Yeah. And and a student of the Bible, a very thorough student of the Bible. But we see in, in saints, the narrative in saints, we see this really heavy reliance as we're leading up to Joseph Smith's theophany, the first vision, that they're using the 1842 version, which is the official church version, and they're using Lucy Mack Smith's autobiography, uh, biographical sketches. Uh, they're using it extensively uh, for the way that they're leading up to this. And if that were the only, if, if those two things were the only sources that we had, I would totally say that's that's completely understandable, reasonable, and fine, and we should use them. However, there's plenty of other sources that we have leading up to this event, covering the event, and so on. And so I think that this is where our you know, detective skills. If you're, if you're going to be a researcher, a historical researcher, you're, it's, it's important to pull from as many sources as possible. Kind of like what we try to do here in our podcast, you really need to pull from multiple primary sources to be able to come up with it, with a valid idea of what is happening at the time. And even sometimes you you can have many different primary resources and you're not going to get the full picture, but you, you get as good of a picture as you're going to get, as opposed to relying on one or another resource. And, and, and it's and it's uh, on its own. Well, and it goes back to, I mean, just use that same analogy as far as gathering evidence as a detective. You're not going to rely solely on eyewitness accounts because those, I mean, those are de- demonstrably flawed. You need to gather evidence that is that is surrounding it, the circumstantial evidence, everything that's surrounding the, the events that are leading up to this point. Something that's unimpeachable, really, you know, because... Yeah. Like you said, um, certainly firsthand accounts, um, uh, eyewitness accounts particularly, right, have have a inherent, um, not only a bias to them, but inaccuracy because we just don't remember things really well most of the time. So Saints mentions the, the phrase, he, he says, uh, sorry, they say, uh, although he read little, he liked to think deeply about ideas. Now, I, I'm not here to um, make an offender for a word, so to speak. This is probably one of the weirdest phrases I've I've seen in the entire book. I don't, I mean, I don't know about you and I don't know about our listeners and please, again, I want to hear from you guys. So please just tell us how, how this comes across to you. But this is the weirdest sentence I've ever heard because well, it's a point that they're trying to make, right? Yeah. And it's certainly, it, it's, it's really inferring a lot. Yeah. Within that single it sentence. Is. And I'm not, I mean, I, I don't want to draw too much attention to it. I don't want to give it too much time and whatever. But, okay, once again, although he read little, he liked to think deeply about ideas. So first of all, what, I mean, what do you think about other than ideas? That's kind of redundant. Um, just a weird way to phrase it, but I'm not, I think that's not, that's not important. What they're trying to say is that he didn't read but he was smart, I think, is the idea that they're trying to get across, which has been the narrative forever. This is what people have been trying to do forever is say, well, yeah, Joseph, um, you know, he wasn't book smart or he didn't have an education. But, you know, he 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 knew enough to give his, his sermons. He knew enough to, um, you know, be, to do all the other things that he did. But it's a it's a weird defense, I think, because. We don't have a ton of information about how much he read, other than his mom 
saying in her in biographical sketches that he didn't read a whole lot that he was the one in the family he was the one that read the least right that's what she says and, and it doesn't say anything about his propensity to read the bible which was huge he read the bible all the time he knew the bible inside and out so i don't know if saying he read little is accurate in the slightest i think he read a lot i think he read the bible a lot did he read widely probably not probably you know that was probably mostly an access issue because he was schooled as well he did he he learned from his father his father was a school teacher for a little bit and and he knew how to read like i i don't understand the point that they're actually i do understand the point that they're trying to make i just don't like it i don't like what they're doing with this because it's a weird way to kind of um you know the term rest the scriptures yeah i'm, I'm saying that uh in alma 41 for example alma 41 1 they, they talk about some have rested the scriptures, which is to say that they have twisted it or they've, they've changed the meaning of something. And I, I really think that that's what's happening here is that they're taking something as a, as a type of defense, um, but just trying to say, hey, this guy didn't know very much. And I think that that's super, honestly, it's wrong. And, and, and it's also unf unfair to Joseph, maybe, if I can say that, because... He, he did, he was very, he was very intelligent for one. I mean, we know that, but he also knew, okay. The main point I'm trying to make is he knew the Bible extremely well. He often recited verses from the Bible verbatim on his own. That was something he did on a regular basis. Yes. Well, that was one of the very few books that he had access to. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the other thing is uh, like that, that term, although he read little, well, is it that he did read often or frequently or is it that he didn't read he read little uh just like you said uh he read one book a lot <laughs> he read read one book a lot so his the volumes that he read you know uh the 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 novels that he read the different variety of books that he read was little yeah and yeah. and i think that this is kind of drawn from from what emma smith was talking about um him being very uh, educated, very little, Yeah, you know, which w really wasn't the case either. But, um, well, she said that he couldn't, he couldn't write a, a, a well worded letter, which, oh yeah, yeah that's, that that's exactly, true. he couldn't spell very well, but spelling wasn't standardized. You look at his letters. He's very eloquent. His journals are very eloquent. He actually, yes, it's weird when you look at his journals, like how introspective he is all the time. And he, he writes very poetically. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, there's this, there's this defense that exists. And I think this is my main point. And I think that something that is, that is trying to happen here and not trying to make an offender for a word. I think that this particular part really bugs me. And that's why I just wanted to kind of get that part out. Cause I think that this, this is a sentence that is carefully crafted and it's crafted for a reason. And I think that it's false. And that's why I wanted to point that out. So I don't think that I'll do this very often. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but it's just, it bugs me because it's like, it's just, it's patently untrue. But anyway, um, moving on. There. Um, well, and one, one could interpret that as, uh, well, he didn't read too good, but he thought real good. Yeah. I, I don't even know if that's even the point they're trying to make. It, it's almost like they, it, it's, it seems like somebody making a defense of trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want him to not be learned because it makes the Book of Mormon look better, but then they also don't want him to look like an idiot. Yeah, it's almost uh, it's almost um, a, a purposely built-in ambiguity. Yeah, that is meant to kind of get us to think one way when it's really not exactly. 
the case. Exactly. So anyway, moving on. We know that uh, we know that that uh, Joseph Smith Jr. was beginning to come become aware of some of the preachers around him and how they were, in his estimation, sinful hypocrites. Um, it's something we grabbed from from Vogel again uh, in his in his work. Uh, he was coming from a place where his home life was constantly, you know, distraught. He has parents that were, not just parents, the whole family really, unable to decide on religion. And, and again, something we spoke to before in the family dynamics part of, of uh, episode three. But, uh, you know, this is something that's distressing for a child, obviously. Um, but we also talks about an instance, this is extremely interesting, in around 1819 to 1820. An instance in which he caused a neighbor to become so upset that they actually fired a shot at him one night. They shot a gun at him. <laughs> they didn't hit him. They just oh, they shot boy. at him. And nobody would say what his mischievousness actually was, but they the, uh, the thought is that he was accused of stealing property and or, quote, ungentlemanly conduct with one of the farmer's daughters. This is brought up in a couple of different um accounts and and again you can you can find this reference in, in Dan Vogel's The Making of a Prophet on page 29. Um interesting little tidbit. I mean you know that when Joseph says that he's going um to pray in the 1832 edition at least, he's going to pray for a forgiveness of sins. We'll get into this again in, in the next episode. But um, you know, that that seems to be the main thrust of his whole thing. He says, you know, he was caught up by um I'm, using, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's caught up by some of the things that he had done that were wrong and he wanted to be forgiven for his sins. And so he goes to pray to seek forgiveness. And so this could be one of the things that he's referring to. I'm sure there's plenty because, you know, everybody has uh, their, their things that are going on. But um, a little thing that uh, that is probably not mentioned very often, I think people aren't very aware of. Uh, but yeah, somebody uh, evidently took a shot at him. So interesting. Well, and uh, therefore, subsequently, caused a permanent brown stain in Joseph's pants. Yeah, that's a, that's in the record. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. We have the <laughs> we have the pants. Direct, we have the yes. trousers. Direct quote. <laughs> no, we have the artifact. We have the trousers. Still yeah, stained to this day. That's gross. Anyway. But, <laughs> but you know, this this brings up a a really interesting uh aspect of of um of Joseph Smith and and kind of the impetus uh, well, Joseph Smith Jr. and the impetus that led up to him going to the grove mm-hmm. and and praying. What was what was the the uh, the impetus that led him to that point? Right, and, and that's the whole point of what we're trying to get out here. Right, um, is here. Here are some things that that set the stage for the Theophany event. Um, so anyway, it's really difficult to pin down exactly when Jr. had his vision experience. Um, he notes in 1832 that it was his 16th year. So that's kind of the interesting thing. Is the first account, we're, we're going to do a much deeper dive. I keep saying this, but we're going to do a much deeper dive into the accounts in the next episode. 
Um, there's also plenty of resources on the different uh, the differing versions of the of the First Vision account of of his theophany um, that that are done by many different people, uh, many different podcasts even. So there's a lot of great resources out there. So you, you can go look that up. In fact, you can look up the church's own essay on it, which is uh, pretty revealing in and of itself. But anyway, in the 1832 narrative, it it says that he was in his 16th year. Um, again, we're going back to this idea of semantics, but it's, it is important to kind of figure out exactly when this happened because there's so much, there's so much that's going on in the meantime. Um, you know, though, you know, using the mention of, of revivals in Palmyra would indicate it was probably more like 1824 to 1825, like we said before. Um, that would probably, that would have put, um, Joseph Smith Jr. around age 19. So that's why we're talking about this difference. You know, they're, they're, yeah, there's a pretty big difference actually between being um, 15 and being 19. Um, certainly a, a level of maturity uh, that's different for most for most people at least. So, Well, and we could just talk about, I mean, what we now know about brain development. Um, you know, I, I, your, your brain doesn't completely develop until early to mid-20s. So, I mean, just that, that small time frame of five years between 14 years and eight, uh, 19 years of age, there's a huge amount of development within the brain, within our understanding that happens during that time. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so one thing that we learned from Brody as well is that these, these years that Joseph Smith Jr. is, is forming his ideas of what it is to be a person for one thing, but also you know, what it's like the religious experience that you're going to have, right? Um, this Pentecostalism that's happening. These were, these were the most, she says, quote, the most fertile in America's history for the sprouting of prophets. We have oh, the boy. examples that she uses, but I mean, we're talking about just, just the, uh, think about all the ones that didn't make the cut. <laughs> there was plenty. Oh man. So, you know, thousands were preparing for the imminent second coming of Christ and the ensuing millennium. Um, it, it, it speaks volumes to the fact that the the church, uh, especially early on, but even today, is uh, is very much a millennial church. It's a church that is anticipating the second coming of Christ. Hence the name, Latter-day Saints. We believe that we're in the latter days, right? Um, we see a lot of different sects that are doing the same exact thing right in the same time frame, in the same area. And everybody is thinking Christ is coming. It's right around the corner. We have several people who actually predicted dates. Um, obviously, it never happened. But, um, you know, th- it's it's occurring where people are saying, I know that Jesus is coming next Tuesday at 7 o'clock. Be ready. <laughs> We're all going to meet. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that, that that really hasn't changed presently. No. Except now we look, we view those like for the most part, we view those people as quacks, mm-hmm. as just crazy people that are, oh, they're predicting now. Certainly more so today. End of days. Yeah, certainly more so today. Yeah. So the difference, I mean, I, the, really the difference between between then and now is the the message of, of the church really hasn't changed. It's still, we're preparing the earth for the second coming of Christ. It's that, uh, that the, for the most part, that, that kind of language or that kind of message, uh, about the imminent second coming of Christ has really gone away with mainstream religions. Yeah, no, it has. I, you, you have a totally different attitude today, but you know, we're, we're talking about 
uh, and this is something that Brody points out too, we're talking about a, just a multiplicity of prophets born out of this time and place. And the most interesting thing, and I think this is important for people to remember, I, I said a bunch of names earlier. Nobody knows those names. Like you have to be a historian uh, or, or read history to, to know who those people are. But a lot of people know the name Joseph Smith. <laughs> a ton of people know who Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Mormons, is and was. And that's actually pretty impressive to see that you have this one person who's coming out of this time frame that people know more than anybody else. He was the only one to survive, really, and thrive amongst all these different and contenders. And that notoriety. Absolutely. Uh, throughout the several, well, several, the, the couple hundred years that have intervened. So it's, it's pretty impressive, um, I have to say. And I think that many people actually recognize the fact that that's a really impressive feat for somebody to, to come up with. So. Oh, yeah, totally. So, okay, so we're, we have all these things that are leading up to this event. I'm, I hope that we've made the case at this point to say that this didn't appear in a vacuum. This, this whole thing didn't occur in a vacuum. And that there were several events and several things that, uh, that, that might have triggered a, a type of theophany event we're talking about. Uh, Joseph Smith Sr.'s visions that he had, the several, I mean, seven visions that he had. Uh, we're talking about all the different prophets that were that were coming up in this area at this time, and, and not to mention all the other religions that were starting and stopping and, and splitting and all these different things that were going on. There is, it, it's almost like the conditions were perfect for this. Um, so interesting to kind of note that. Um, one final point I want to make, and I, I, I think maybe this is just another pet peeve of mine or something, but um, we see in the um, in the saints book that they mentioned that he heard James 1 5 the 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 verse that states if any of you lack wisdom let a mask of God um, the book states that saints does um, that he heard that from a minister and I don't know if that's uh, odd to you or at all but I mean when I heard it I thought did he? I thought he read it in the in the Bible. I thought that that's how he came across it, and it occurred. Oh yeah, he just he just happened upon it, and that's that's the narrative that I was taught growing up. Absolutely, it was. And again, I keep going back to this video because I think it was just so formative. But uh, Joseph Smith, the prophet, prophet of the Restoration, shows that it shows that he's like going to these you know camp meetings, and then he goes home and he reads the Bible, and that's when he becomes aware of, or you know, that's when he's enlightened to the meaning of James one five. And it's actually, it's actually really powerful. And it shows somebody who is studious of the Bible, who's reading through the Bible. It's like, oh, this is interesting. And I don't need to go to all these other people to find out what's true. I just need to go straight to the source. And I love that. I, that's something that I always use teaching on my mission uh, to people is that uh, from the Bible, obviously, that you don't, you don't need anybody else. You go straight to the source and, and ask God, uh, you know, directly. So it, uh, interesting that you should mention that you look at the, the reference for, uh, within saints, it's referencing a very obscure, uh, source. It's William B. Smith's last statement where, uh, this is found in Zion's enzyme, mm. January 13th, 1894. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> he, he states that during, during this interview with, uh, William B. Smith, uh, who remind me is that, is that it's uh, his, just his, brother? his younger brother? Yeah. Yeah, his younger brother. He they interviewed him and and asked him, or and and William B. Smith uh, recounts Joseph's first vision, and this is where we get this this uh, reference to Joseph hearing 
the minister quote. But at the same time, knowing the uh, knowing Joseph uh, Jr.'s propensity for studying the Bible, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he came across the scripture on his own either. No, that's and, and every other version of the of the first vision, and, and again, this is one of those points if somebody can point out to me that I'm wrong about this. Um the, the, it's something that he says he just came across. It, it doesn't actually say how he came across it. There is one version of the first vision in 1843 that was an interview with David Knight White. And, and in that interview, he states that, uh, this is where he states that he came across um, James 1.5 promiscuously. And this actually, to, to me, this makes the most sense. And, and it doesn't have to be the truth. I just think that it actually fits really well with the, with the, the consensus of, of what's happening uh, at the time with his use of magic, things like that. Of course, promiscuously would point to, it doesn't necessarily mean, but it would point to the fact that he was using uh, a form of what's referred to as bibliomancy, um, wherein, and we've all done this. I, I mean, I have, I, I can speak for myself, but wherein you would- Oh, I certainly have. Yeah, yeah, where you flip through the Bible and you just kind of randomly flip through and then boom, you open it up and you stick your finger down and oh, that's the verse that I need to read. And that's the verse that's, uh, that's God speaking to me right now. That is bibliomancy. And it's a weird term to use. <laughs> it sounds kind of odd, but that's what it, it's essentially, it's, um, it's, it's just a, a way, almost like casting lots, right? So it's a way to randomize something in a way that is a message to you. You you introduce, it's almost like um, the concept in, in magic and, and also the concept in early Christian um, method as well, What is that you if you introduce randomness into the equation, that allows God to come in and speak to you uh, or, or it allows, you know, spirits to come and speak to you in, in occultism. So, that seems to me to fit pretty well, but I don't. I don't really care if that's the case or not. I think it makes sense. But he he almost certainly. I mean, if we take this one record from William Smith, which by the way, they're being very preferential with the way that they're using William Smith here, because most of the time they don't like William Smith because he was kind of crazy. I mean, you know, possibly clinically uh, ill, like mentally ill, but. Um, well, and and remind me, I, I think at one point he was arguing that he was the next prophet. He was as well. He was one hundred percent. And so we see any reference to William completely dropped, other than this one weird reference. And this is way after the fact too. So I I don't know. I to me this is just one of those things. Again, we're talking about um, twisting. We're talking about resting this whole this whole the record here, and we're saying why 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 does he need to hear it from a, a preacher? Well, because he wasn't well read, right? Oh yeah, and ties right into that narrative. I think this is just another part of building the case that he didn't read very much, and so he had to hear it from a minister somewhere, and that's where he got it from. When the preponderance of uh, a preponderance of evidence shows that he found it himself, he didn't find it through a minister. It's possible that he did, but I, I don't think that that's what the record shows. So. I just well, and that doesn't play well with the narrative that they're trying to portray. No, you know they're trying to portray Joseph as being an unread, uh, un uh, uneducated. Uh, yeah, uneducated. Thank you. Not unintelligent, but uneducated. Yeah, exactly. Intelligent, but uneducated. Illiterate, yes. really. Honestly, yes. not not in, a, in any type of demeaning term, but like the literal term of illiteracy. You know, meaning that he couldn't read or write. Um, I, I just think that it, it supports that narrative, right? Which is obvious. But that narrative is is pretty shaky. And there's a whole it's the whole reason that they're they're doing that is because it makes it easier 
to it, sorry, it props the Book of Mormon up to to look like a completely. It makes it look more miraculous because it came from somebody who was who was not you know literate. Well, and when you when you uh, when you compare that to, uh, I mean, you, when you start looking at, um, you're looking at the the Bible verses within the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Well, Joseph wasn't wasn't well read, and he didn't know the Bible. So how could he also, it just adds to the miracle of the, uh, the Bible verses and, and the entirety yeah. of the book of Mormon. Yeah. It's a miraculous story. Right. And, and just mm-hmm. for the record, Bushman says that he got it on his own too. So I think, I think that it's safe to say that he did. Uh, honestly, it, it's the, we have to go on the majority of what we have. And wherever that evidence leads us, I, I don't think we need to be afraid to go with the majority of the evidence. And in this case, it's very clear. And it's one of those things that is just astounding to me that they can fly in the face of the fact that the majority of, of accounts speak to the fact that he found this on his own and that he did read the Bible pretty frequently and knew it really well. But they're trying to create a different narrative based on the language here. I'm not trying to make an offender for a word. This is important. This is a very important part that is wrong. And so that's what we're here to do. We're here to point out all the good things, which we have, I think. And we're here to balance it out with some of the things that we think are, are false and to correct it and set the record straight. Well, and what's crazy about you, you mentioning this, I would have never connected those two. I would have never drawn the conclusion that that this is the narrative that they're really trying to trying to portray. And um, I would have never made that connection. I mean, it's it's for good reason. They have crafted it extremely well. I have to say that they're great at crafting the language here. You know, a great resource, I'm just going to throw this out there, is, um, is uh, Radio Free Mormon. And um, take him or leave him. You, you may not be a fan of how he does his podcast. I think he's pretty fair, but others may not think he's very fair. I totally get that. But this gentleman... Um, is is in, incredibly good at analyzing language. He's an attorney, so I, I completely understand that. Um, but <laughs> he's good at going in and looking at specific language and seeing how it was crafted. He can see it from the eyes of an attorney and see, oh yeah, yeah, this is what the, the work that went into this. I think the average person doesn't understand the amount of work that goes into crafting language here. Every single word, every single phrase is so carefully crafted in this book and and everything that the church puts out. By no means are are anything, uh, any of these uh, phrases in here or words in here a mistake. They they chose them for a reason. And so we have to read very carefully to understand why, or to at least to inference why they chose that. So yeah, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that, you know, I may may be making a connection that doesn't mean anything, but it means something to me at least. And that's why I I decided to um, include it in, in our, in our show today. So, well, yeah. And if you ever read a contract, you know, how verbose it mm-hmm. may appear to be, but mm-hmm. I mean, just, just like that, there's, there's a purpose and a reason why they're, why that language is as it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, that's going to do it for today. Um, we ran a little bit long today, so we appreciate you hanging with us. But we really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of No Man Knows My Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, please show your support for us by going to your podcast app so that you can rate and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate that. That's, that's the thing that's going to help us the most right now. 
Um, once again, we we do this because we really love Mormon history. We love learning about this. We love sharing what we what we learn with other people. Um, just like we've always been taught as good Mormons is to share the, the truth that we find with other people. And and truth is a tricky word, but you know, things that we've learned like what we just shared um that are fascinating and that other get other people to think and to do their own research. One of the greatest compliments you could give us is just by telling your friends and family about about this podcast. A word of mouth is one of the best ways we can get our podcast out there. So please tell everyone you can about No Man Knows My Podcast so we can reach as many people as possible. And finally, uh, you can find us at our website, nomanknows.com. Uh, you can go through social media. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nomanknows. Or you could reach out to us at uh, Twitter on at nomanknowspod. So on our next episode, um, we're going to get to chapter two in Saints, um, Hear Him. This chapter is really succinct, and it and it covers a lot that uh, I think needs to be expanded on. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover Joseph Smith Jr.'s theophany, of course. Uh, we're going to be diving into some of the primary sources of the accounts. Um, we'll probably leave it to some of the the other resources out there that have been exp- extremely helpful in in dissecting the minute details that are that are ex- absolutely important. And critical to understanding how these um, accounts, how these accounts interact with each other, essentially, what the differences are, what the similarities are, and so on. We're going to try to use what we find to be substantive differences and a progression. That's what we're going to be trying to lay out here, and also kind of understanding the historiography of the first vision, so how it was written, how it was changed over time, and and that sort of thing, or how how it was written about uh, as well. So. Be on the lookout for that. Um, Once again, we thank you so much for listening to No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. Stay tuned for more discussion. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I ruined it. I wasn't. I wasn't happy with it from the beginning anyway. Slow. It it. might be. Might be getting to midnight. I don't know. I can't believe that we went this long. Well, (laughs) okay. Once again, thank you so much for listening to No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. Stay tuned for more exciting discussions.